Um, but I would like us to start with a word of prayer, and I got my better half with me this morning, uh, Lee Reed, and so this is simply for recording purposes. Can you hear me okay, or do I need to get the big mic? Oh, uh, yeah, that that's proved to be an issue yesterday. So, sweetheart, okay. if you'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time for us to meet together. Lord, all of us are here because we want to honor and glorify you with our actions. And we know, Lord, that it's possible for us to do all the right things and yet not be doing them in the right place. So we pray that you would give us a a sense of, of heavenly GPS so that we know that we are in the right location, doing the right thing, uh, the things that will bring you honor and glory. Uh, pr- bless this meeting. Bless all who are here, Lord. Speak to us this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. So can you hear me well enough in the back? And if not, guess what? There's opportunity up front. I don't pass the, I don't pass the offering plate. Um, now, we do have handouts, and of course, there's the evaluation. And today's presentation could easily be a two-hour-plus intensive. So if you find it to be helpful, uh, I would appreciate that kind of feedback on the evaluation form. So I'm Karen Reed. I am a registered nurse. I am not a nurse practitioner. Uh, I teach nursing. My specialty, per se, is uh, rehab nursing as well as community nursing. And my heart home is Cambodia. And so what I'm here to talk with you all about today is what is it like teaching in an international uh, setting? So I wouldn't be an educator if I didn't have learning objectives. So those are my learning objectives. And just to let you know, I have added four slides since I uh, submitted, uh, made the handout. And for the folks that are looking at it live stream, there will be four slides that you don't have um, handy. So, but you'll be fine, promise. So my husband and I are tent makers. We both work full time in North Florida. He's a high school teacher. As I said, I, I teach nursing at UF. So we're tent makers. When we go to Cambodia, we actually do not go under the auspices of a, a board, uh, which makes us a bit unusual, uh, especially in a, uh, a conference such as this one. Um, but we're, we're tent makers. We're living and working in an area that is underserved and needs assistance. Now, to take it just a step further, I basically, as a nurse, am conducting health diplomacy. Now, when we use the word diplomacy, we tend to think secretary of state, you know, big government kind of things. But if you're a health, in health care and you're doing work in a setting that's underserved, needs resources, you're creating programming or knowledge that is sustainable, you are a health diplomat. So it's like, roll and set those shoulders, you know, be a bit proud. So how in the world did we wind up in Cambodia? Well, every good fairy tale begins with the phrase, this is your only audience participation, by the way, uh, so it's a pass-fail and I, or complete incomplete. Every good fairy tale begins with the phrase, once, no, not us. It's a once upon a dare. My father-in-law is a missionary. We were dating. We are a second marriage uh, that's been very blessed. And uh, he wanted to make sure when I said I wanted to do international work, I really meant it. So he said, hey, let's go with Dad on a trip. 
not knowing that I'd always had had a heart for Southeast Asia. And as much as I loved Vietnam, when we crossed over into Cambodia, I realized I'm home. I'm home. You know, it's just, it, I, that's a whole story in and of itself. But that was actually 17 years ago. And since then, I've been to Cambodia seven times. COVID and some family issues have kind of interrupted our, our, our annual trips, um, our biannual trips, but we're going to be back there next summer, and we can hardly wait. So I want to set some foundation on what's the situation that I teach in so that you can begin to then think, oh, okay, as I go over the teaching constructs, I can see why this is necessary. Cambodia and Laos tend to tie with one another on the lowest health outcomes in, in Southeast Asia. Um, literally, uh, sustenance, you, you need about $2 a day to live, and most of the population are below that. Um, and then, of course, the chronic malnutrition among children. Notice only 24% of Cambodians have electricity. When I started there, it was 13%. So it's actually increased since 05, which was my first very brief trip. Um, access to clean water is very problematic. Now, look at this last one. Talk about inadequate public education. 75% of the kids who do go to public school fail their exit exam. Now, public school's free, but you have to be able to wear, have a uniform and buy your supplies. So there's an entire strata of people who never learn to read, never go to school, simply because they can't afford their, the, the cost of a uniform or a, uh, the books. And that's one of the things that my husband and I do. We support a group of kids to go to school, and when we're there, he teaches English as a second language to basically street children that live in the community that we've adopted. So why is this such a horrible situation in Cambodia? And this flips all the way back to the 70s. 75 is when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, and the Khmer Rouge took over, Pol Pot took over Cambodia and started a odyssey of genocide that literally 25% of Cambodia's population were either murdered or died of starvation or of just diseases as a result of, of starvation and a lack of, of health care. Um, if you had glasses, that was you were going to die. If you were a teacher, you were going to be killed. If you were a nurse, you were going to be killed. He wanted the population to be like oxen, slow-moving and without thought. And because of that, and that does have great impact on what I do, of course, the elderly were some of the first to die, as well as the very young on into middle age. Seventy percent of Cambodia is under age 30 which means they don't understand normal aging and all that comes with it. They don't understand grandparents, the role grandparents can play. Average age in Cambodia today is only 25. So that's a very, very young uh, country without the, the resources they need to be successful. So in 1979, when the Khmer Rouge were, were pretty much placed under control, although it was 97 before the last of them were, were squashed, for lack of a better phrase, uh, there were only 45 physicians who had survived that four-year reign of terror, and 25 immediately left the country. 
Yeah, okay. 26 pharmacists, you can see 28 dentists, and then down to 20 nurses. And this information has come to me from the Ministry of Health and uh, different people, nurses that I know that literally lived their childhood throughout that four-year period of time and wound up working in Thai refugee camps in 79. So I had Cambodia on my heart. Great. So what? Yeah, and I'll use that so what question again later on. So what if I want to do this? Anytime you go into another country, your work needs to be meaningful, it needs to be sustainable, and it needs to match your skill set. And if it's something you're going to do for a lifetime, it needs to be something that you obviously enjoy and it, and it meets your, abs, your needs. And yes, you do have needs. So you have to do a self-assessment. So I gave put blanks for you, but for me, uh, for y'all, I filled in what my self-assessment looked like. I actually travel and live well alone because oftentimes we're self-funded. Um, we can't afford for both of us to go, and so I'm the one who goes. So there was one time I did have a grant, and it paid for me. I was in Cambodia 12 weeks, eight of which I was completely on my own, uh, traveling the back roads of Cambodia doing an assessment of their nursing programs. Uh, talk about, even for me, the lonely factor definitely kind of kicked in there towards the end. I work well with sudden changes. Okay, the electricity has gone off. Now we're just going to step out and pick it right up. I've taught neuroanatomy with a palm frond in the dirt outside the classroom before. Um, I'm accepting of the beliefs and the lifestyle. You have to. I've got to accept my students where they are at and then show the love of Jesus through what I do. I tend to be organized, and I am a bit of a prepper, but uh, I'm flexible when, when it, you know, the situation calls for it. Now, what are my must-haves? Okay, I have arthritis. I've already had both knees replaced, and I have pins and plates in both feet. Kind of ironic for a rehab nurse, right? Except I know a lot of good PTs. So I have to have comfortable sleeping arrangements. You will never see me sleeping in a, a hammock underneath a mosquito net. It just is not going to happen. I could maybe do that for a night, but within two nights, I would be a babbling idiot. Um, it just isn't going to happen. So I have to have a comfortable place. Um, also, you know, I'll sweat all day, and in Cambodia, you sweat. <laughs> and I'll sweat. I don't mind being grimy, don't mind being dirty, but at some point, I want that shower, and then uh, let me take a good night's sleep. I also need some downtime. I'm one of those people that to be around people 24-7 would drive me stark raving mad. So if I went someplace with a team and it's like, go team, go, and we're here all day, and then we're here all day, I, I would be spastic within, uh, with hours. I've got to have my downtime, you know, where I'm you know, just contemplating what's going on, what do I need to do, do some reading, doing some journaling. I also found out from that 12-week summer I needed a home routine where I have a body of work that I'm seeing people on a regular basis that I know or I learn to know. Um, just dropping here, dropping there, and every day being different wound up not really matching my skill set. But you don't know that until you do it sometimes. So I lived and I learned. Now, one of the areas I have no experience in or I prefer not to do, I stink at fundraising. That's, I'd rather work an extra shift or a second job and, 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 and self-fund. Uh, I know there's folks that argue that one, but it's like, mm, 
Now, <laughs> let me just work a little extra. And, um, and then, um, I, you know, clinic work. I've never done clinic work. Now, I will say I'm stepping up to the plate there, and in March I'm going to do a clinic with RAM, that's Rural Area Medical, out of, and they'll be in South Carolina. So that will be a new experience for me. But that's not my strength. That's not my skill set. Um, people say, hey, do you take students abroad? I did one time. <laughs> no offense to students. It's that whole alone time versus being with somebody 24-7. It just, it worked out. We had a great time, but it wasn't something I would necessarily do again. Uh, I've already shared with you, I'm certified as a rehab nurse. I'm certified as an educator. Um, Chronic disease is my specialty, and that's becoming a big issue in a lot of these countries. And then I work really well with an interpreter. And so, and I do have experience in professional development for nurses. So those are just some of my strengths. So when you're going to go abroad you need, and you're going to be working, whether it's in a clinic or teaching, you need to understand that country's situation. What are the communicable diseases? What are the chronic diseases? What are their medications? In the United States, we use an American formulary. In Cambodia, they use a French formulary. Okay, and they use everything metric. So, uh, and a lot of it is in French. So I never thought I'd be using that high school French, but I do on occasion when I'm looking at charts. What is that national health care system? So those are all things that you need to know. Uh, In terms of Cambodia, um, no surprise, pretty much internationally uh, from a chronic disease standpoint, strokes, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, cirrhosis, alcoholism is a big problem over there. the death rate or the risk for death is about 25% for uh, people between uh, ages 30 and 70 related to chronic disease. And that totals to about 60,000 deaths per year. I really like the picture of the, I know this sounds weird to say, I like the picture of the lady smoking a cigarette. You don't usually see women in Cambodia smoking cigarettes. They usually do betel nut, which is a mixture of caffeine as well as um, you know, the ingredients from tobacco, and that's what is staining the lady's teeth uh, at the bottom. And she's just smiling. She's not, like, looking for a dental appointment. Um, I would be remiss if I did not bring up landmines. That is a part of the legacy from the Vietnam War. Um, there's approximately 16 million landmines in Cambodia. One out of every 250 Cambodians have at least one traumatic amputation. Again, rehab nurse, and I know amputations. So in our country, it's related to typically complications from diabetes or some kind of peripheral arterial disease. Over there, it's due to trauma. But the care needs to be the same. The nursing process is still the same. Um, by the way, the number one country for landmines still today, I was actually surprised, is Egypt. They have over 23 million landmines that are active and buried everywhere. Um, going back one, uh, you can see the prosthetic devices, just how rudimentary they are. Um, that, that's my leg in that middle picture, and that shows you that's for a child. So we aren't talking just adults that have traumatic amputations. We're talking children as well. Okay? 
And, okay, we're doing great. So in terms of infectious disease burden, it tends to be respiratory diseases, neonatal, waterborne diseases. And I can say, thank goodness, I've only had dysentery one time. I never want to have it again. Mm-mm. But uh, you survive, even though at the moment you, you kind of wonder. But notice TB and AIDS have really dropped down. So the problem over there, as well as many other countries, isn't the infectious disease. It's the rapid increase of chronic disease. And that means the healthcare professionals in that country need to understand, how do I care for these chronic diseases? Because if they're chronic, that means they're going to last a lifetime. You know, somebody's blood pressure comes down, you don't stop them off their blood pressure medicine. They still have to take it. Um, now, one of the pictures, okay, I love the picture on the left. Okay, it, it, I lied. Audience participation, question number two. What is that a picture of? Anybody know? Is it the condom? It's a condom. I about decapitated myself taking this picture. I was hanging out the bus window taking a picture. He grabs me by the seat of my pants and pulls me in just as a big truck comes by. But the, they, it was part of the public health campaign because of HIV and, and AIDS, and they're called Mr. Happy over there. <laughs> okay, I like the picture. All right. So when I'm teaching abroad, it's got to be culturally relevant. I cannot teach these students the same way that I teach my nursing students back at the University of Florida. They don't have access to the same medications. Uh, a lot of them are working in areas that there is no MRI, you know, or CAT scan. When I started in 05, there was only one blood bank in the whole country, and if you didn't have the money for the blood, guess what? You didn't get the blood. So, I mean, there, and there were no dialysis centers. So, bottom line is you have to teach within what is available and what is the belief system. Um, now, I will say, those are two graduate students I took with me on, the, on that bottom left picture, and they were teaching hospital educators how to design self-studies, how to create lesson plans, and they were rock stars. They, uh, I would take them again and again and again. Okay, so moving on again, when you're teaching abroad, you need to understand what is it that the health profession that you're associated with, what are the resources that they have? How many, like, PTOTs do I have? Any therapists here? Okay. Uh, nurses? Nurses by show of hands? Overwhelming nurses? Woo! Okay. Uh, ND, PA, DOs, wannabes or current? Okay. All right. So... All right. So bottom line is you've got to know what is it that, that institution, those institutions have or that profession has. What's available to them? Guess what? There's no textbooks in Khmer, the language of Cambodia. Oh, my gosh. So they have these textbooks in English, and the few faculty who know English, they, they simply pull what they can. We'll forget the whole copyright thing, la, la, la. Um, and literally... Their teaching style over there is for the professor to talk in the microphone and they talk like this and the students are frantically writing notes, no questions allowed, no interaction, and then the professor gets up and leaves. And, and they give you just enough information that the student then, if they really want to do well on the test, they have to pay the teacher privately for additional information. Now, 
Could we get upset about that? Absolutely. But by the same token, let's go back to what, do you, what does it take to survive in a country like that? And the graft and what we think of as greed is really a survival mechanism so that they can put food on the table. So I am never going to throw a rock at anybody uh, for that kind of activity. Um, but bottom line is English, and we can say Spanish and French, but English overwhelmingly is the language of health care. And yet um, less than 5% speak general English. This is faculty, by the way. And less than 1% can speak or use professional uh, nursing English. And none of the nursing schools nor hospitals have nurses as administrators. And there was a great program yesterday on raising up nurse leaders. And that's one of the things that it has been a joy to see it change over the years. There was no nurses. There was maybe four or five nurses that with legitimate bachelor's degrees when I first started. And we now have someone with their Ph.D. in nursing. We have several with master's. And we probably countrywide have about 80, 60 to 80 nurses with a a legitimate bachelor's degree. By legitimate, I mean a quality education that they have gotten, but it was outside of the country. Okay? So when we look at funding sources for education, so oftentimes the funding is directed at post-service. It's, we're going to do continuing education. We're going to do continuing education. And my question was, well, what about undergraduate? What about graduate? Who's, who's doing anything there? And I realized that was the hole that I could fill because I'm perfectly okay with that. And I certainly have had some unusual situations. I've had a cow walk into the classroom. And by the way, there's no screens on our windows. There's no air conditioning. The electricity goes on and off. Um, Now, I don't do geese. Okay, I'm not into, a, a, unless it's like roasted in nice orange sauce. So when the, and they use geese like guard animals in Cambodia. So when two or three geese come walking in the room, I'm on top of the desk. Okay, I'll tell you that right now. It's like, get it out. All right, and the, um, I will say that most of my work in Cambodia has been from two weeks to six weeks as a rule, but I did receive a U.S. Fulbright Scholar Award, and we were actually able to live there for 10 months. We don't tell our six kids, best year of our lives, sorry kiddos. And um, that really allowed me to develop that reputation and, and, and develop those relationships, because education is relational. And these uh, pictures are from that year. So what are the challenges? Well, social isolation. I don't speak Khmer, and I will say it's not for the lack of trying. My husband picks up languages like I could pick up peanuts. Me, on the other hand, my southern accent comes out. It comes out like, Sessa by day, (laughs) y'all. I mean, you know, no. It just, I have tried. I have tried and tried. And the bottom line is, peace really descended on me when I realized they're wanting to learn English. They need to learn medical English. And that's what we're going to do. Um, but it does make you socially isolated if your interpreter is not there and you're working in a school where overwhelmingly or a setting where there's very few English speakers. So that can be isolating. Supplies. 
<laughs> you never know what you're going to get. Um, the, that's, the man, that's the high-tech mannequin that this school has. And what didn't show up in the picture were these three wonderful skeletons, like the skeletons that's out in the, the display, but they were encased in plastic. It was to show off to visitors what a donor had donated, but you weren't allowed to use them. Yeah, so I actually had to make a deposit on one of the skeletons so I could take it into the classroom. And you go, oh, you know, when I took the plastic off, I said, okay, let's start looking at the bones. And, you know, what does this do? But I actually had to make a deposit in case there was damage to the, to the skeleton. The big one is the curricular backfill. You have no idea what people know versus what they don't know. And especially until you get some experience teaching in that, that, um, that environment. And here's probably one of the best stories that I can tell you. And you wind up becoming a storyteller. Your hippocampus or your hippocampi are your storytelling parts of your brain. I was asked, and it also, let me back up a second. It also supports the statement, you are there for them. It's not about what I know. It's about what they want to know. Okay, that's really important. It's about them, not about us. They asked me one summer to teach renal and endocrine. Oh, boy. And I'm like, oh, let me teach about stroke and neuroanatomy and cardiac. And they go, no, we want you to teach renal and endocrine. God, you're going to have to shower me with knowledge I don't have very well. You know, you kind of develop a specialty after 43 years of nursing, okay? And I thought, okay, how do I make this work? And my interpreter, by the way, was a non-nurse, that experience. And we're starting the basic, and I always start with a little bit of anatomy. The basic unit of the kidney is the nephron, right? So I ask them, I go, all right, what's the basic part of the kidney? Nephron. I thought, oh, thank you. So I'm at the board. I'm drawing very simple tubules so we could talk about filtration. Right? That's needed to know. And I could just hear the sign. I mean, it was like nobody was moving. I turned around. I went, what is wrong? And they go, we did not know anything was inside the nephron. Our faculty did not know any, does not know anything is inside the nephron. Oh, golly. How do we get out of this one? So I go, give me a moment. Everyone knows the Mekong River. Mekong River goes all the way through Cambodia with many branches like a tree. And down those branches there are boats that carry bananas, which are potassium, jackfruit, which is sodium, and people, which are water molecules. And we have the boats go, and the jackfruit goes on and off, the bananas go on and off. You know, the water, the people go on and off, and you get to the Gulf of Thailand, and you have urine. That was my, that was the best I could do. And they go, oh, we got it. So it was like, okay, so that, our literally, I drew the Mekong Delta, like the beginning of every one of those lectures. Okay, just to kind of keep it simple, because they needed to feel, you know, confident in what they were doing. Um, and but that whole backfill business, you just don't know until you get in there. And you may be surprised at what is known, and you may be very surprised at what is not known. And you've got to be prepared on a dime to be able to, to flip it in. Now, that sounds slightly terrifying. After a while, it just becomes your norm, you know. 
Sustainability, that is so important. Anything I do has got to be sustainable. Um, and the case in point is, this is the library in, it, in its, uh, there we go, in its, I was tearing it apart. They were keeping every book that had ever been donated to them, including a 1948 book on care of diabetes. They'd probably kill somebody if they used that book. And it took me three months to talk the director into letting me purge everything up to current plus five, so six years. And then I, they had me box and label everything in case those donors came back. I'm thinking they're going to be coming, raised up from the dead before they come back for some of those books. Okay, but that's what they wanted, and that's what I did. And, um, and now you see on the bottom right, me with all those books, what I do is, the deal is, I replace the books, and then I package up the older ones. I bring new books, and I keep it really simple. Anatomy, um, assessment, uh, med surge, fundamentals of nursing. If I can just keep that going, we've, we've got most of the topics covered. So, let's think about classroom procedures. Those are some of the things you have to consider when you're teaching abroad. Will, how will the students enter the room? In Cambodia, they bow. They take off their shoes and they bow. And, at, and I found out the hard way. Um, I like to pack up my stuff and think at the end of a class and nobody was leaving. They were waiting for me to leave first. You know, and then they would all bow to me as I as they left. And we finally came up with a with a deal. I would stand at the door and tell each of them goodbye, and then I would pack up my things and have my quiet moment. So what happens when they're late? I had students, I'd give them a five-minute break, and there would be those that took 30. It's just, I mean, they did. So fortunately, Cambodians are a very joyful, playful group. And what does the fox say was the big deal when I was there for 10 months. So if you came in late, you got to come up front. What does the fox say? And it was like nobody wanted to do that with Dr. Karen. So it kind of helped with the whole timeliness of things. Um, But, you know, we also have shame cultures. So how do you give feedback to students? You know, what do you do? And this is one of my classes. And as you can see, they're jammed in there side by side. Now, what I have learned over my time is I've developed what I call M to the third, model, mentor, and mobilize. And whether I am working with a nurse educator in a hospital or I'm teaching in a classroom setting, I want an educator to be my co-teacher. And this is Satya. I, all my three daughters are married. If I had any other daughters, I'd be trying to get them to marry off. On uh, I love this young man. He is so wonderful. Satya was a new nursing educator, and so every we modeled. I worked on this is what the lesson plan looks like. This is what a lesson plan should have. What do you think? Do you think I can cover that? And he was my interpreter. So I modeled. I did the teaching at first, and then I started assigning him some of the lessons, and then we would do feedback, and I mentored him. And uh, this actually was uh, faculty development, and on the right it was a, a nurse development program we did at a very rural clinic. Oh, my goodness. There was just nothing there. Those people were miracle workers. Um, <clears throat> but bottom line, he meant, I mentored him as he went along. And then what I do is by the end of my visit, 
no matter how short or long I'm there, I mobilize. They're going to take over, and I'm in the back writing down, what do I need to buy for dinner? What am I going to do for my gifts? I've got to go to the Russian market and pick up some table runners and blah, blah, blah. So I'm in the back doing my little thing, and he's got it. He's rolling. And that really works because then not only have the students learned, we've got sustainability. We have at least one faculty member who has gained insights that in turn they can share using this model. Um, as I said, clinical professional development education, uh, again, it's not about me providing the health care. It's about helping them develop the skill set they need in order to teach if they're nurse educators or if they're clinical nurses. Um, this, these pictures, it just show, shows how they tend to be very technical. They tend to put a Foley and indwelling catheter into the bladder using very sterile technique. Very sterile, but they don't do pericare after that. Okay, so on the on the left, uh, I had no, I didn't have a like a what we call butt models, you know, to show pericare. So guess what? This makes great labia. Here's your labia majora, and here's your labia minora, <laughs> and, then, and I just put a little catheter in between her fingers, and and I demonstrated how do you do pericare? You know, sometimes you have to work with absolutely nothing or what you've got. And but I was teaching the clinical educators in that hospital how to do it, and on the bottom right, that young man was actually teaching. So again, that model mentor immobilize is absolutely critical for sustainability. For faculty development, well, and truly, even for the nurse educators, I love the Addy model. Now, I'm a UF person. This did come out of FSU, Florida State University, but I want to give them full credit. Um, but it looks a lot like nursing process, doesn't it? Analyze, design, develop, implement, evaluate. Um, but I teach them that very simple framework because they do tend to think very technical, very rigid uh, somewhat. Now, I've, I've done many um, faculty development programs now on exam question development. Um, they all want to know about research. I'm not a researcher per se, but if this is what they want to learn, this is what I need to be able to teach them in a usable manner, okay, as well as a variety of learning activities, I'm going to kind of keep an eye on the time. But uh, for teaching methodologies, I use case studies, games. Oh, my word. Even though one kind of backfired on me, and that's the picture in the middle on the left, I was teaching English medical terminology. So what I did was divided at the class, and you were either a prefix, a word root, or a suffix. And, and they have big carports for people to put their scooters under. So we had signs on the poles, prefix, word root, suffix. Everybody, and, Oh, and I did have combining vowels. I had a few combining vowels. And they're holding their little piece of paper. And on the count of three, you know, they had to out, find partners and create a word and link arm in arm. Oh, yeah, one problem. Do you think they did this quietly? No. Ah! And they're running around and they're finding. And then there was actually somebody who was like a tug of war on a word route. You know, it's like, anyway, school's in session. There's no air conditioning. The windows are all open. 
To say the least, I totally turned the school upside down. The teachers had to stop lecturing because their students were rushing to the windows to see what Dr. Karen was up to. That's the humility moment that was in my abstract. That was one of many. Like, oh, my gosh. And Santiago, like, he was ready to faint. It was like, Santiago, it will be okay. No. It will be okay. No. I, I will make it okay, Santiago. Let's just get through this. But the bottom line is, after we got everybody matched up, there was these people who were left over. And as a group, we got in a big circle to see what other remaining words we could put together. And, um, and, and there was always prizes. I was feeding everybody. You know, they'll do any, they love the little cookies and nuts and stuff that we have there. Gallery walk. Okay, that may be something familiar to some of you who are students, where you have your papers on the wall and then together as a class we walk around and you had groups present. Uh, we did do small group discussions. I love drawing. Not that I'm good at it. But the part of your brain that sees color is very different than the part of your brain that sees black and white. That's why I tell my nursing students, highlight in different colors, write with different color pens. And I always take color pencils. Why? When they're ground down to nothing, they're biodegradable, whereas a marker is not. And I leave the pencils with the, um, the faculty member that I'm working with. So these are just a few of the things that I do for teaching methods. If you're going to lecture, you've got to keep it short. I mean, let's face it, we all get fanny fatigue after, I mean, even an hour is a lot for y'all to be sitting there. Um, so we've got to keep it moving about every 15 minutes. Plus, my interpreter, they're getting exhausted, flipping back and forth between languages, as well as those who do know English, they're thinking Khmer, they're thinking in English, it's just tiring. So 15-minute blocks is really essential. Don't use contractions. We use those all the time in the United States. Most of the world does not use contractions. Uh, that's a problem when you start using things like don't and won't um, or can't. Avoid compound sentences. Keep it short declarative. You know, so it means you're talking in very short chunks. And after about two sentences, allow the interpreter to interpret. And by the way, interpretation's verbal. Translation is when you're is written documents, when you're doing one language to another in writing. So if, if someone's talking, though, that's interpretation. Uh, also, in the United States, we're notorious for starting sentences with prepositional phrases. In the beginning, blah 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 blah, and then we get to the subject and the verb, and it's like. Okay, that doesn't work very well when you're interpreting, okay? So you need to flip it. Again, keeping it short. I teach a, a pre-nursing elective called Transcultural Communications in Healthcare Today, and I do throwdowns. And one of my throwdowns is don't start a sentence with a prepositional phrase for 24 hours and come back and tell me what it was like. <gasps> you know, they, the students just didn't realize you know, how many sentences that they were using that they did that. Um, I, whoops, I absolutely um, misspelled. But we want defined terms. We want terms that are familiar and defined. So, you, and again, in English we have a tendency to variety. We want to use various words to make it rich. No, we're going to confuse people. 
You use the same words again and again and again and again. And especially if they're learning English as a second language from a healthcare perspective, that really, really helps them. And then scaffolding. I'll start by giving part of the answer, and then they have to give me the rest of the answer. And by the time that semester is over or that session or that workshop, whatever I'm doing, we're then moving to more complex, and that's called priming the pump as well. And I'll have cue cards for them. And um, I also want to make sure that I'm using Kamai examples. So um, I'm using examples of situations that they're going to see in public health as well as in the hospital setting in Cambodia. And I provide outlines so, ju- so they're able to then fill in. Because note-taking is a difficult thing when, again, you're working with an interpreter and you're hearing the words in English. And a really nice hint to do is maybe allow a few minutes at the end of an hour and have them pair up and compare one another's notes so that everybody makes sure that they get all of the essential information. Kind of a pair and share thing. And I also like a routine. Uh, it helps them. They don't get bored with it. If anything, from a cultural standpoint, it gives a, okay, I know what to expect. You know, the information is going to be new, but the format, and we used nursing process for everything. Nursing process wasn't used in Cambodia until 2013, and the Ministry of Health said, you shall now use nursing process, but nobody knew it. So I was teaching nursing process in our nursing school, and then I was going around the southern part of the country teaching nursing process to uh, groups of nurses in hospitals. So I kept that format, and that was very, very helpful. I really like this phrase. Critical thinking is our aim, not a list of procedures. Even, even with my students, I'm like, okay, folks, is it, you know, especially when you're moving from acute to rehabilitation. So let's talk about the so what factor. So what that I've done all of this? How do I evaluate learning? Here's my other humbling moment that I will share with you, and there's many. I'll just give you two. I did a multiple-choice test. Why? Because that's what we give in the United States, multiple-choice tests. And guess how many students passed the multiple-choice test? Zero. Zero. None. Why? Because in Kamai, they do not have words for, like, duck or by, not like quack, quack, duck, but D-U-C-T, duck. Uh, pancreas, aorta, you know, they don't have Kamai words. So what happens is you have to describe that. And what happened was one interpreter, uh, my interpreter wasn't available, the one who had been teaching with me, and I had someone else translate the test, and they used terms completely different than what we had used in the classroom. So they didn't recognize any of the questions, and I went, well, that's a bust. Now what? So I went with case studies. I went with presentations. Okay, endocrine, diabetes. You, you group, you're going to do a little presentation on uh, patient teaching on foods that would be appropriate and foods they need to avoid. They did amazing. They had obviously understood it. I just needed to give them a medium by which they could use that information or share that information. Um, so I, I, that's, you have to think about how am I going to evaluate. Feedback tends to be, needs to be very specific. Not good job, good job why. Uh, 
Or, you know, I'm glad you did that. Well, what does that mean? You know, you've got to be specific. And, and those of you students, you know, you want specificity on your feedback as well. Um, and then finding out what kind of feedback and rewards are preferred by the students. Um, that's always helpful. Now, I will say, and we're going to get into question and answer in a minute, is um, the one test that I did do that was written was my English medical terminology. And now, you see how crammed they are? In Cambodia, cheating is acceptable. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, there was another whole row right across the aisle. Okay, so I have 100, 105 students crammed in this room that should hold 50. I made six versions of the test. So it was like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three. No, and would you believe I still had, and every class has a joker. I don't care what culture you're working with. And I had this one. He knew who the smartest girl in the class was. He happened to have the same, he figured out she had the same version. He's waving it. And, he's like, and she gave it to him. And so he just writes down her answers and very proudly hands it to me. I'm going, okay. I had, I had to get the director involved in that one. Because uh, he was a really awesome guy. That was one of the reasons I picked that uh, school for my Fulbright uh, teaching experience, because he wanted better. Uh, and he was so proud. They were the first nursing school to have an English medical terminology course, which is now not only being taught today, it's being taught in all public nursing programs in Cambodia. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, talk about sustainable. But this gives you an idea of what the tests look like. Is that is ecte a, a prefix, a word root, or a suffix? And what's the definition? Now, I, I did the statistics, and the average was 79.4 for, for 99 students. I did have a student who earned 24%, but that student was very rarely in class. I, out of the 99, I had nine who made perfect 100 on their exam. It was like, woohoo! Yeah, and we had pizza party at the Reed House um, to celebrate that for the hundreds. And so, written exams can work, but you have to be very selective and specific with it. So, I love this picture. That grandma is so proud of that grandbaby. And my husband and I have 10 grandchildren, so we understand that kind of pride. So, please, now it's your turn. What questions do you have? I think I've managed to stay. Ooh, yeah, uh-huh. All right, so talk to me. Questions, comments? Sure. Okay, I want to do back to front. Pushback? Well, that's interesting. So the question was, did I ever get pushback on the things that I've, I've done? Uh, part of that was being selective about where I, I, I taught. My first teaching experience, the one with the renal and the endocrine, you know, none of the faculty ever came in. You know, we didn't have tea. We didn't share pictures of our kids. And the director said, you've got to do, uh, you're going to do a Saturday workshop for every Saturday for the next month. I'm like, 
No, I'm not. I'm sorry. It's no. I'll do one. And all the faculty were forced to come in on a Saturday, and it was obvious they didn't want to be there. They didn't care about it. And so they weren't receptive. But, you know, that's a lot like, you know, sharing the word of of the Lord. There's going to be people who are receptive and people who are not receptive. And you pray for the ones who are not receptive, and you wait for that time where you can engage. That was one of the reasons I spent those eight weeks traveling to all five nursing programs. Where could I be the most effective and get things started, prime the pump physically? And Kempot Regional Training Center was it. And those faculty were completely on board. We became, well, you've seen the picture. We're, we're still grand friends. The man who would have been my, like, department chair when he died, well, I'm going to start crying, so I better stop that. But we have remained close over the years, and that's kind of our, our home. But now other public nursing schools have seen the benefit of what has happened uh, from because the, their scores have really gone up from a nursing perspective. So, um, you know, it's kind of like you've got to have that demonstration project that's really effective. But I learned that first time, and that was part of that social isolation because I'm used to, like, you know, being with my, my, my peeps during the work day, and I didn't have a work family. And then I had a question somewhere here. Yeah? What is their kind of, I don't you know, I'm thinking like as an educator, like we always want to like prepare for practice, but we have like lots of in goals. We know that the students are getting in class. Right. We have AAC and Right, right, right. Okay, they have a state board if you you graduated from one of their bachelor's programs and they only have about two. But again, they're not certified, they're not accredited, the quality is very poor. When I first started in Cambodia, nurses were only allowed to take, uh, use a stethoscope to take a blood pressure. That's the only thing they were allowed to use a stethoscope for. They were very low on the height. And it's been, it's been like watching your kid grow. I mean, and I'm not being paternalistic at all. I mean, it's all about them. They have made it happen. They've been raising up those nurse leaders to now. They're doing physical assessments and, um, you know, and monitoring patient well-being. So the quality of practice has improved so much over the 17 years. But, no, there's no um, consistent standard. Uh, which is, it's, that's a challenge. Is that hard It's all about them, and, and, you know, when they're ready for that. Now, they do have a council of nurses now, so you now even have to be licensed. I was the first uh, U.S. nurse uh, to be licensed in Cambodia. And so they now have a licensure, which they didn't even have. So you had people who weren't, hadn't practiced in years. And now they have to show that they do so many hours of continuing education. So there is some post-graduation quality monitors that have to be checked off. I think there was a question. Oh, up front. yeah, and then I'll come back here. I've never, I've never, okay, this is, okay, it's my funny moment. A funny moment with a humbling moment. Uh, no, I've never been told there's something I cannot teach. However, when I was teaching endocrine, excessive perspiration was a symptom for several, and I was going through menopause that summer. And they would go, Dr. Karen, do you have this disease? No. Do you have this disease? No. And I finally said, I'm going through menopause. And they looked at me and they go, what is menopause? This goes back to the Khmer Rouge. They didn't have grandmothers. They didn't have mothers who were going through menopause. So all of a sudden, I said, I'm trying to explain it. And I'm looking and I go, 
do you understand about, like, sex? And it was like, so anyway, it turned into, like, middle school. And 40% of nurses in Cambodia are male, by the way. So I had all the young men go out and giggle, 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 and the curtains close. All I can say is, if you look up the word hymen on your computer, it gets blown up with porn. Um, but I had to put together, uh, literally, they did not know what their own anatomy looked like. They didn't know what a woman's anatomy looked like. And, and what were the functions? So I wound up, I thought, if nothing gets me, this, this doesn't get me deported, nothing's going to get me deported. Anyway, I wound up teaching sex ed like my last two days at that particular school. And then we flipped, and of course the girls were, <laughs> you know, anyway, it was, yeah. I, I didn't. I brought, I brought up Mr. Happy. I figured I, I'm in for a dime, in for a dollar. I was going to be leaving the country next the next week anyway, you know. So where are we at? We've got yep. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. yeah. Well, I didn't accept the norm. What I did do was, what is it that the Ministry of Health is, is wanting? What's their five-year plan? And how can I dovetail and help them, from a countrywide standpoint, meet their needs? And their vision was nursing process and physical assessment. Got it. And then the English medical terminology, they thought, we've never thought about this before. And what I was doing was I was teaching a course, and it was kind of a strange course, nursing care of patients during procedures. Okay. And they were all memorizing the words. I said, no, 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 no. If you learn what bronch means, you learn what scopy means, then you know what endoscopy means, bronchoscopy means. And that's how that whole English medical terminology came about. And the Ministry of Health asked me to come to Phnom Penh. And the only time I got a pushback was the physicians learn in French. And they're like, nurses don't need to learn English medical terminology. They need to learn French. And I go, beg your pardon. No, all of the textbooks that are resources are in English. And, they, and so we had to kind of, you know, I'm from the South. I know how to do that, you know. <laughs> Oh, come on, y'all. So we, and so we got the English medical terminology in there. But I work, you know, what is the Ministry of Health? What is your vision for nursing? And then I have to put, even though I know they can do so much more, I'm going to work within that. And that's one of the things that's allowed us to be, I think, very successful. And like I said, we, they, they're happy with us coming back. And that's kind of our retirement plan. He's about to start on his Ph.D., our doctorate. And when he finishes, we'll, we'll be living over there or wherever God puts us. Yeah, in the back and then in the middle. Oh, there, well, let me share with you. One of the things I do, and we're going to be, and I'll take, then I'll take one more question is, my big question is, what do I do when I'm not there? 
And so what I do is I get groups of my BSN students, and this would work, and, and you can collaborate with the nursing program. They'd be thrilled to death. We have a dedicated YouTube channel for Cambodian nurses, and they create, I teach my students how do you create a PowerPoint on, on a continuing education topic. The Cambodian nurses pick what the topics are, and then they put together those PowerPoints, and they, we put it on that YouTube channel. And so anything maternal child, you know, edu- and then the public health education, you know, and, and spina bifida, there's at least 600 to 1,000 cases. Most of the time those children die, and that's one of the hard things to deal with but you know vitamin deficiency you know what are the foods that they already have that could address that Um, so that would be I would say collaborate you know with a nursing program and say hey you know what can we do that's cross-cultural but um, there but there's tons you can learn on on just learning how to teach I mean that's that just takes time and passion so uh, but take one of my cards and we can talk yep Right, and that, and, and any time, well, think about it. I, there's still nurses out there that are doing dorsogluteal with their injections, and it's like, no, we haven't done that in a long time. And that's why I not only teach in the classroom, I also do professional nursing development in hospitals and work with those nurse educators, and I also will, will do teaching with those nurses. So I keep it from a, you know, a, a two-way, and that seems to help. So um, I know that our time is up. I thank you, please, you know, feedback. Let me know if I need to come back next year or I need to just be sitting where y'all are. And, oh, one quick announcement. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry, really quick for her. Okay. Woohoo! Well, thanks to all of you for being here today.